Welcome to episode two of season one of the Scroll podcast. Today, we are delighted to have with us Misha Ireklech, who is a PhD researcher and activist academic from the Chavashen region in today's Russia. Uh, Misha's PhD research focuses on shifting configurations of gender, sexuality, and race in Russian film and TV. Their other areas of research and activism include racism and the erasure of ethnic minorities in Russian culture. Misha, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to start off by just talking about the uh, Chabash people and the their history. Could you give like an overview of um, the the history of the Chavash community that is now colonized in Russia. So Chavash people or Chuvash people as they're known in Russia live mostly in Chavashian or Chavash Republic, which is an autonomous republic in Russia. Although the borders of the republic are smaller than the borders of, um, um, you know, historic um, areas where Chavash people lived, uh, partially um, they they lived in kind of Russian regions that are to the south and west of uh, Chavashian, but also in Tatarstan um, and Mariel, which are neighboring republics, and uh, like Tatar and Bashkir people, Chavash people uh, belong to kind of the Turkic group of people. And to give you a brief background, Turkic. Uh, people are basically a group of people who moved west from what is today East Turkestan or Xinjiang in China and possibly Mongolia. And, you know, now they live in Turkey, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, of course, in East Turkestan still, as it is in the name, as well as in uh, the North Caucasus and Kirim or Crimea, where the native people are Crimean Tatars. Chavash people are quite interesting because they were one of the first Turkic people to make it so far north, basically traveling through Central Asia and north towards the Idel Ural or um, uh, Volga Urals region of today's Russia. And we, um, I mean, I have to, I say we, but not really myself, but uh, Chavash people who are native speakers of the language speak um, Chavash, which is um, very unique in the sense that it's um, it's the only existing language in the Ogur branch of Turkic languages because all the other Turkic languages are classified as belonging to the common Turkic uh, branch. Uh, and Jewish people became uh, colonized by Russia basically together with the Tatars and the Maris when the final sort of um, Turkic state in the region fell to um, uh, Moscow under Ivan the Terrible, uh, basically with the siege of Kazan and the fall of Kazan, which was um, the anniversary was very recently, and it's commemorated a lot by, especially by the Tatar community. Thank you for that. Sadly, I don't think that uh, certainly here in the UK people know anything about the colonized communities and their histories uh, in, in Russia. So I think it's important always when we're having these sorts of conversations to bear that context in mind. Um, obviously, the Chavash people are a colonized community now in Russia. Um, if we just talk briefly about before the latest invasion of Ukraine, um, what did resistance among colonized communities in Russia look like before the latest invasion in February? Uh, 
So I think that's right. Almost nobody knows about the colonized native groups um, in Russia, uh, with one possibly with one exception. And I think the most sort of persistent case of anti-Russian resistance happened in the 90s and early 2000s in Chechnya, and Russia fought two wars, and it took them over basically over a decade to recolonize Chechnya fully. And I think this is probably the most traumatic um, traumatic case of anti-colonial resistance in Russia because Chechnya was completely destroyed. Um, much of the tactics that we see now in Ukraine, uh, such as, you know, bombings of civilian infrastructure happened in Chechnya. Um, the UN judged Grozny, which was Chechnya's capital, both during the independence and post-independence um, period, was completely destroyed, and the UN described it as the most destroyed city in the world in 2001, because Russia used carpet bombings, which they went to use or, uh, went on to use in Aleppo. Um, and of course, Aleppo is also completely destroyed. And, uh, you know, um, before I'll talk a little bit more about other forms of resistance, but why I think the Chechen case is important is because this was the first war that Putin regime, the Putin regime fought. It was um, completely unopposed in so doing by the West. And what people in post-Soviet states and in Russia realized or is that, you know, if the West was tougher on the Putin regime during the Second Chechen War, which was full of these atrocities, including the use of rape as a military strategy, which we again are seeing in Ukraine, then very probably the Putin regime would not have been in a position to launch a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Um, the Ukrainian government is very aware of that. They've renamed a few streets in Kiev just a few months back after... Um, uh, Jahar Dudaev and the Chechen Republic of Chechnya. They've recognized um, Chechnya to be an occupied state and they've recognized their independence and their government in exile. There were other instances uh, of resistance in the Caucasus. There was an Islamic sort of um, Islamic state affiliated insurgency in Dagestan. Um, and if we move away from the Caucasus in the Ural region, in the very early 90s, there were also sort of um, attempts at independence. Famously, in Tatarstan, they had a constitutional referendum in 1992, basically voting for sovereignty from Russia. In the end, the Russian federal authorities managed to negotiate um, a treaty of extra autonomy the, with the Republic of Tatarstan, guaranteeing them lots of um, extra rights, such as the issuing of um, ID documents in both Russian and Tatar, it was the only Russian Republic to be given that privilege, um, extra sort of economic power for the Tatar government, the status of the president for Tatarstan. But all of this has been removed in um, Putin's, um, uh, during uh, Putin's reign. Um, and of course, in Chuvasha, we also had a referendum, and I think it was in 1993, but I don't think the voting was fair and basically the sort of the more auton pro-autonomy constitution was rejected in favor of a more sort of um, Russian-centric constitution. Um, but the Russian state also um, signed some extra autonomy treaties with Chavashian and with a lot of other republics. And the sad thing is, you know, the powers granted to the extra powers granted to the republics by these treaties were gradually dismantled by the Putin regime, and he, um, the Putin, eventually failed to uh, sign the continuation of these treaties. So all of them have lapsed. The only treaty which had not, which did not lapse, was the treaty with Chechnya, where Ramzan Kadyrov basically signed 
signed um, signed over the extra autonomy before the dead before the treaty would have lapsed in exchange for more financial privileges from the Putin regime. So this is basically a history of official sort of. A, um, entity-based resistance to Russia, which no longer exists. Um, all of the governments in Russian republics and autonomous regions are run by collab Putinist collaborationists, most clearly in Chechnya, because, you know, um, the Kadyrov family switched sides during the Chechen wars and they betrayed their pe people. Um, but everywhere else, um, the president of, Ch of Chavashian, uh, the, sorry, the current head of Chavashian, or the governess, if you want to call him that, was one of the people who authored the law banning Russian republics from compulsory teaching of um, our state languages, uh, because on the grounds that, you know, it's, um, it's a form of discrimination against Russians. Having said that, we do have resistance, and we have always had resistance, and that resistance unfortunately was very fragmentary and piecemeal. Um, I'm not sure how much I can talk, but for example, we can think about indigenous uh, people of Russia and using the UN definition of indigeneity, so small number, traditional lifestyle, and kind of a tribal way of life. In um, Yamal and Nance region, um, the Nance um, tribe have worked together with their own community organizations and Greenpeace for decades to oppose Russian extraction of um, um, natural resources in their region because it basically um, it, it, it destroys the landscape, it destroys their traditional lifestyle, which is based on nomadic reindeer herding, it contravenes Russia's constitutional obligation towards indigenous people, it, uh, it um, intervenes the UN, um, it contravenes the UN Charter of Indigenous People. These protests were unnoticed both in Russia and in the West uh, by most people, um, namely by Germany, who continued to base their um, energy strategy around the exploitation of Russia's indigenous people, which I think is shameful given Germany's own past of kind of eugenicism. And, you know, these indigenous people in Russia are subjected to eugenics policies such as residential schools. That was also the case, you know, in Canada and the U.S. until the 1960s. Um, in Chavashian, the resistance was mostly cultural, and I think it continues to be mostly cultural. Although with this war, there is a growing sort of politicization of, um, of the resistance. But, you know, it is very specific to the context, because contexts and places colonized by Russia are very different. And we've even seen some successful protests, for example, in Bashkortostan. Um, the locals uh, successfully opposed um, the creation of mines in Kushtao, which is kind of, um, I think, a traditionally sacred um, mount or a mountain range or a hill range in Bashkortostan. But um, the protest movements have always been quite disorganized, a little bit piecemeal. All the sort of uh, formal protest movements were dismantled. Um, over the last decade, we've seen all the national organizations, be it Bashkort or the organization of Tatarstan, and definitely in the North Caucasus, they were dismantled and banned as extremist organizations. You mentioned the role of collaborators. Uh, with uh, Putin's regime in in some of the uh, regions in all the republics, in all the republics. Um, if we look at the situation now, do you see any way forward for these um, collaborators to sort of move away from collaboration or to begin rivaling the regime in some way for power or monopolies on power in the regions? So. 
power in Russia is asymmetrically distributed. The federal go government and the Kremlin, for example, doesn't control or directly manage um, sort of land and business issues in Chechnya. You know, Ramzan Kadyrov, who is the Chechen dictator and probably the poster boy for pro-Russian collaboration, does that all by himself. But the reason why he's able to do it is because he has funding and sort of military, well, not military, but sort of secret police and repressive resources that are provided by the Kremlin. In the current reality, I do not think there is space for any of the sort of official national leaders to switch sides because they are all complicit in wartime mobilization, which has disproportionately ta targeted colonized people, and there are also reports from the ground of indigenous people who are protected by the Russian constitution and they should not be drafted under any circumstances uh, being drafted. And you know, people who are doing this, they're either Russians on the ground, and we have to acknowledge that almost all Russian republics and autonomous regions are Russian majority, Chavashia not, Tatarstan just about, Tatar majority, and the, the North Caucasus as well. But everywhere else, if we look at Buryatia, especially if we look at the autonomous regions where indigenous tribes live, there is a Russian majority, so of course they man most of the state apparatus. But even this quote-unquote sort of republic where the governments are composed of, you know, people who are native to the Republic, they have been instrumental in enabling the mobilization drive, they have not said anything against the war, and of course they couldn't say anything against the war because they are part of the Putin system, their power, very much like the power of a lot of the princes and the princely states in India, it relies, it relies on the colonizer, and I do not think there is room for them to change their policies, and I also don't think these people should be allowed to participate in sort of the independent governments, because if we look at other post-Soviet states, and I'm talking specifically about Georgia, Azerbaijan, Kazakhstan, um, and some others, the, in these states, the post-independence leader and in Azerbaijan, now the son of the post-independence leader, they have come from a long line of Soviet apparatchiks, you know. Um, after Georgia had an experiment with Gomsahurdia, who was a Democrat but a hardline nationalist who tried to exterminate the minorities in Germany. In Georgia, we had the return of Shevardnadze, who was the Soviet Minister of Foreign Affairs. In Azerbaijan, we had the Soviet leader of Soviet Azerbaijan become the president, and now his son is the president. In these countries have not seen any decolonization, proper decolonization during the period of being run by these sort of um, Soviet slash post-Soviet oligarchs because they are interested in maintaining Moscow's sphere of influence. They're not interested in democratic reforms. What they're only interested in is repression and sometimes, as was the case with the Nazarbayev regime uh, in Kazakhstan and with his successor regime currently, in using nationalist or maybe anti-colonial rhetoric to maintain their own oligarchic power in the country. And what about grassroots um, resistance and uh, organizing? Again, sticking to before the latest invasion of Ukraine, what does that look like? Grassroots organizing, well, I've mentioned some of the protests that happened in Bashkirtostan, but unfortunately there was little grassroots organizing really in terms of political power in Russia's republics and autonomous regions in the last 20 years. Um, there's been a lot of sort of more and more, and I think partially after the Russian invasion of Crimea, there's been kind of almost a cultural renaissance. For example, a record label from the North Caucasus, I think from Kabardino Bulgaria, from Cherkessia, or at recordings that's interested in sort of preserving musical traditions from the North Caucasus region and kind of updating them or um, 
sort of um, updating them for um, uh, to stay relevant to kind of um, contemporary tastes, musical tastes. Um, uh, I have a friend um, from Chavashian, my childhood friend, who has started a project, um, I think after uh, the Russian invasion of Crimea, that interviews Chavash, kind of older people who live in villages to preserve their way of life, to kind of show their music or their traditions, their traditional costume, and that project has actually grown now to incorporate kind of um, people outside, older people living in villages in other parts of um, Russia, but there has unfortunately been very little kind of, of what we would, could say political grassroots organizing against um, against the, the Russian state. Um, indigenous uh, people like Nans has been kind of organizing around um, around the issues of the ecology and land rights, uh, the same in Bushkartastan. And of course, in most Turkic regions, there's been a lot of grassroots discontent against the treatment of um, Crimean Tatars, who are obviously a Turkic group, and who, after the Russian occupation of Crimea, uh, suffered another wave of uh, horrendous repression, of being kind of host forcibly hospitalized in psychiatric hospitals, um, put in jail um, for, you know, expressing pro-Tatar views, and that trauma is obviously in people's cultural memory uh, with the Tatar deportations that happened in 1945 under Stalin. Um, but yes, unfortunately, apart from that, there is, there hasn't been so much um, grassroots activism, and I think the reason why that happens is because in a lot of Russian republics we are against a Russian minority, a majority, and we are against an education and cultural system that aims to Russify and change the mentality of the colonized to kind of um, gaslight them basically into thinking that um, they're happy with the colonizer and their policies. But of course, that's slowly changing, especially in the younger generation. So if we think about um, post-February 2022, post the latest invasion of Ukraine by Russia, um, how has resistance among the colonized communities evolved since then, if at all? So um, it is interesting because we are basically facing a situation with the stakes. For the colonized are higher. And just to give context, um, Russia announced um, partial mobilization, and the word partial and the partial I think refers to the fact that they're mostly mobilizing colonized people, both in Russia and in occupied Ukraine. Um, at some point, uh, the Ukraine and um, the Crimean government in exile, because Crimea is an autonomous republic in Ukraine, so their government in exile said that they are hearing reports of somewhere between 60 to 80 percent of the mobilized soldiers being from the native Crimean Tatar community who actually make up only about I think 17 or even 15 percent of the peninsula's total population because of Stalin's deportations and the situation has been the same not that not as extreme in other republics but for example Buryatia seems to have mobilized more men than the entire city of Moscow which has a population of around 18 million people and in Moscow as well, they had uh, weird sort of racist initiatives where they would tell Central Asian migrants from independent Central Asian states that, look, uh, you can join the Russian military and we'll give citizenship to you and your families, which is, you know, a repeat of the eternal colonial thing. And then, like, the Gurkhas here will find out that nobody's actually going to give them citizenship if they even survive. So the stakes are higher in that sense, but the stakes are higher in the sense that 
the Russian state is morphing into a fully blown nationalist project because beforehand Putin tried to pretend that we had regional autonomies and that, you know, native people were respected as long as we didn't force Russian kids to learn our languages at schools. But now there is a rhetoric of kind of the third column and whenever there are atrocities in Ukraine, the Russian propaganda goes into overdrive blaming specifically Buryats and people from Dagestan. There are all these things where the Russian state releases partial statistics and, you know, when the invasion started, they, they, there were almost no dead bodies coming back to Moscow and so many bodies coming back to Buryatia and Dagestan. And this is not because there were no soldiers from Moscow dying, it's because their bodies were being cremated on the spot or put into morgues and not released to their families in order to create the impression that the war was being fought by ethnic minorities who are barbaric, etc., and not by Russians. And when you are faced with this sort of racism that targets you on every level, through the media by blaming you for the atrocities committed by the Russian state. I'm not excusing colonized people who, before the mobilization, decided to join the Russian army and fight in Ukraine. They made the decision to participate in a colonial um, and criminal war. But it is a fact that the Russian media has tried to shift the collective responsibility onto um, its Asian and Muslim minorities. Um, it's a fact that when the partial mobilization started, um, uh, it is kind of it's proceeding in a very racist way. And of course, nobody's going to blame Crimean Tatar people who are being drafted into the military and literally used as cannon fodder because they don't want to shoot at their own um, sort of country countrymen um, or they don't want to shoot at other Crimean Tatars who, may, who moved to Ukraine proper after um, Crimea was occupied. Um, and in this situation, we're see, seeing finally, I think, kind of a more popular emergence of a, a I almost said class consciousness, but around, I mean, a decolonial consciousness. And it's not fully formed, and it's necessarily, not necessarily the same for everyone. But even if, you, uh, for example, I follow one of the popular telegram channels for Chavashia, for Chavashian, and people there are openly posting that look like we don't want to participate in this war. Chavash people are, are not Slavic. We don't want to protect Slavic Russian Slavic speakers in Ukraine against the sort of made-up threat manufactured by the Putin regime. And we're also seeing an exodus of both native and ethnic Russians from Russia to neighboring countries, and if they're richer to Dubai and the West, etc., etc. And unfortunately, what we're seeing that a lot of ethnic Russians who flee the war, they don't really want to start decolonizing themselves. Um, and there are all these stories about kind of racism and people in Bishkek subletting the, a room and a flat they're renting only to Russians, you know, not to Kyrgyz people, although Bishkek is the capital of Kyrgyzstan, etc., etc. But we're also seeing the emergence of more formal, um, um, more formal decolonial movements from exile. So there is obviously the Free Buryatia Foundation, which was founded as partially as a response to this, I think, terribly racist campaign by Russian media. And what's even funnier, or even worse, by both state Russian media and the Russian sort of libs, or the liberal Russian opposition, who started blaming Buryats for the worst atrocities in Bucha. And if you look at the Ukrainian um, government um, sort of statistics and data, you could see like who was in Bucha. They have almost everybody's names and sort of roll number. And there are no Buryats who were in Bucha committing these atrocities. There were soldiers who were from other Russian Asian 
backgrounds, but sort of, you know, this Buryat thread was completely manufactured. One of my good friends, um, Alexei Kim, um, was one of the co-founders and he had to flee Moscow, um, uh, flee Russia well before the war because he moved from Buryatia to Moscow and he experienced a horrendous racist attack because he was walking with um, sort of um, a white woman who was, I think was like, not even Russian but from Belarus and he was attacked by this kind of skinheads who thought it was inappropriate for an Asian man to walk with sort of what they termed their women so he moved to New York and other people um, you know, there is also now more kind of grassroots organizations within Russia, I think. There is now a Saha Foundation um, that is also working towards decoloniality. Um, of course, Crimean Tatar communities are, you know, from Kirim, uh, or Kirim Tatarlak communities are from Kirim, which is part of Ukraine, but they have been organizing from outside of Kirim um, because of the sort of the horrendous um, treatment of the um, Kirim's native population by the Russian authorities. Um, and we are seeing, you know, um, I, I, I have friends, Chavash friends, who don't know, live both in Chavashia and abroad, who went to protests, who were arrested. But we have to realize that once the USSR fell apart, and the countries that had kind of the largest non-Russian populations, they became independent. In Russia today, more than 80% of the population is Russian majority. So um, there is a lot of fear among decolonial activists and people who are kind of finding this decolonial consciousness because, you know, everybody remembers Chechnya and everybody knows about Ukraine. And it's very easy for the Russian regime to manipulate the situation to kind of justify in the eyes of Russian people its colonial violence against ethnic minorities, both former and current. Um, so I would say the situation is good in the sense that it's amazing to see lots of people kind of rediscovering their roots. Um, I recently read that, you know, there's a boom for kind of Tatar language classes because there is kind of this return to, um, or kind of people are trying to return to their own native culture and they're trying to kind of at least on a personal level and learn their Russianness. And of course, what is even more exciting, at least from abroad, because, you know, within Russia, I, I, once again, I want to say that native minorities are disadvantaged compared to um, uh, ethnic Russians when it comes to activism, because they always become a target for kind of racist and colonial propaganda that works on so many ordinary Russians who really think that, you know, we shouldn't be um, protesting to support our languages, we shouldn't be um, building decolonial alliances, for example, with Ukraine, because, you know, People colonized by Russia, we understand what Ukrainians are fighting for, right? I'm not saying that the Ukrainian state is a perfect state, um, right? But that's not the point. The point is these are this is a state that suffered centuries of Russian colonialism and they want to try to have their own future, you know. Um, I, just to interrupt you, if I may, why do you think that so many ethnic Russians buy into this colonial rhetoric? Um, uh, you know, you could ask me why do so many British people support the Queen? Um, <laughs> or whoever is on the throne now. Um, like most um, big nations, and by big nations I mean, of course, the English, and specifically the English, not the Brits, um, the French, the Germans, the Americans, Russian and the Russian nation is a product of modernity. And modernity was forged on colonialism. Um, capitalism was forged on colonialism. It is part of the current 
kind of global paradigm that we're living in. And I mean, now, of course, there are more softer forms of colonialism through economic neocolonialisms and etc. But in most sort of big nations self-definition, um, the colonial past, and in many cases, the colonial present, plays kind of a big role. You know, we always see people saying very negative things about Native Americans in um, the US, you know, people who are sort of proud of being American. And it's the same in Russia. They believe that they have a right to govern other people because they are more civilized, they're more economically powerful, that, you know, there is a constant rhetoric about, um, you know, our languages being moribund. Some of our languages are moribund. Chavash is not really moribund. But there are languages that are moribund. But the real question is, why is it moribund? It's moribund because of specific colonial interventions by the Russian state. In the case of indigenous um, people, for example, and again, I mean kind of people who fit the UN definition of indigeneity, it's the residential school system that mixes children from different backgrounds and puts them in a completely Russian-speaking environment. Um, and it's not, I think, you know, this kind of colonial self-definition is really not dissimilar from the way a lot of Americans and a lot of Brits and a lot of French people, and you know, ask any, an ordinary French person about the war in Algeria and they'll get interesting responses. Um, and, you know, this is a process of unlearning and I think this unlearning would take work and most Russians don't want to do that work because they don't want to accept the responsibility for what they have done. They don't want to, you know, Russian people living in my hometown, Shubashkar or Chibaksara in Russian, they never learn or speak um, Chuvash. Uh, um, there's a lot of aggression towards Chavash, Chavash speakers in my hometown because uh, for a while um, it had a Russian majority because of Soviet um, population transfers. Yeah. And also, I mean, this is not really directly related to what I mean, but in the West there's a tendency to separate Russian colonialism from Western colonialism, saying that Russian colonialism is more benign. It's not more benign, it is more effective in indoctrinating people because the Soviets realized that, un unlike the British in India, that you have to put everyone through your education system, not just, you know, the, uh, the, the children of the elite, which was generally why, for example, lots of Algeria really stayed anti-colonial is precisely because they were excluded from the French education system and this was a good thing in the long run because they kept their consciousness, um, obviously with some sort of patriarchal, etc. overtones. And of course, when Russians, uh, when people say that Russian colonialism is different to Western colonialism, this is also factually not true. There are still uh, indigenous people who are separated between an artificial border that cuts um, Alaska, um, the Aleutian Islands, for example. The Aleut people are cut by the Alaska border with, I think, one of the Russian Far East regions, I don't remember which one, and of course the Yupik people are also cut by the Alaska and Chukotka border, we can think about the Great Game, and also Russia's crazy obsession with Karim comes from this kind of 18th and 19th century um, sort of struggle for dominance with the British and Ottoman empires, specifically over Karim, which turned Crimea into this sort of also kind of a mythic site of Russian culture that is basically kind of one of the cornerstones of kind of the great Russian self-definition. I mean, it just, it reminds me so much, you know, my research is based on uh, uh, the Balkans and it, re it reminds me so much of how Kosovo, for example, has been completely um, turned into this mythical cradle of Serbian uh, nationhood and identity. But I, I, I shan't be selfish. I'm not going to uh, shift the topic of conversation onto my own research. <laughs> But I just wanted to ask you, um, you mentioned that 
in the West we have a problem with disconnect. We have a problem when we disconnect Russian imperialism to Western imperialism. Um, do you think that is the main reason why there has been such a significant so-called anti-war movement in the West, which has basically just argued that we shouldn't really give Ukraine weapons? Yes, so I, they are not an anti-war movement. You know, I am anti-war. I, uh, I don't believe in sort of military service. I don't believe especially in gendered military service that exists in Russia or in Finland, let's say, right? Um, and the position of the so-called anti-war left in the West is not an anti-war position because at some point we have to accept that, you know, it is not acceptable to let a big empire colonize bits of a country that's already struggling with its own issues, be it, you know, economic corruption and whatever. whatever. And these people, who are, by the way, a lot of them are Russian speakers in eastern Ukraine and southeastern Ukraine, there has historically been a huge Jewish community, which still survived in some diminished form because of the Holocaust to this day. There's been a huge Greek community. The city of Kherson was the basis for the Crimean government in exile and lots of Crimean Tatars who didn't want to stay in the crazy Russian regime that that, that recolonized Crimea moved to. You know, it is a vibrant um, sort of multicultural region, um, south um, and eastern Ukraine, and it is not acceptable for this region to be colonized by Russia not only because colonialism is not acceptable in and of itself, which the anti-war left should really realize, but because Russia has been running concentration camps in um, um, in these areas. And honestly, look, uh, ask any che Chechen dissident, ask anybody who's fighting in the Chechen battalions on the side of Ukraine. I mean, Chechen battalions that fight on the side of Ukraine, they're not fighting for Ukrainian nationalism, right? They're fighting to prevent... Russian colonialism from literally killing and russifying people. And when I mean russifying, what the Russians have been doing, they have been taking children um, from occupied parts of Ukraine and sending them uh, to Russia to be adopted by Russian families, which I think is terrible, and this is what the Nazis did in Poland, for example. Um, uh, and it's I, I'm, I'm not one of these people who tries to sort of deny the horrors of the Nazi regime, but we have to see agree that there is like a lot of overlap in the technologies of terror, the anti-war left takes a position that's divorced from reality on the ground. And what they argue is that, you know, Putin is somehow opposing NATO. Yes, but Putin is, I, I mean, I don't know what he's opposing, but if he is opposing NATO, he's doing it on the graves of actual people. And these people did not give their consent to be used as cannon fodder for this opposition to NATO. And I'm really sorry, but these people who are sort of call themselves the anti-war left in the West, they live mostly in NATO countries, and they know that their hometown is not going to be blown to shreds. And again, you know, um, I'm actually only half Chavash. My mom was born in Chavashian, but she's half Russian, half Ukrainian. And um, my grandfather has close family members um, in Eastern... Well, he had close family members in eastern Ukraine because they're no longer in eastern Ukraine, they're in the west of the country now, who had their homes destroyed for the second time. The first time it was by the Nazis, and the second time it was by the Russians. These people just want to live their lives, and, you know, some of them um, 
my grandfather's cousin was telling me recently who she was born in 39 and she lived through the Nazi occupation of Izum and she was telling me that you know she had friends who refused to leave the city before it was occupied by Russia and they died for example because the Russians didn't bring any diabetes medication to the town you know it's a real conflict with real people and the anti-war position should be to end the violence against civilians as soon as possible and it will not happen as long as Russia occupies parts of Ukraine, because every single city that's getting liberated by the Ukrainian forces, we're finding huge mass graves in Izum when it was liberated, and I just know this because my granddad and all of his family is from there. They found, I think, 60 or 160,000 fresh burials from literally a period of under six months of Russian occupation. I mean, I don't have any words to add to to, to what you said. Um, I think they speak. Your words speak for for themselves. Um, I want to talk about now, um, which is something that we touched on if, uh, uh, earlier on in our discussion. Um, Putin using ethnic minorities as cannon fodder, especially in the latest mobilization drive. Um, has there been resistance? Is it possible? Sorry for ethnic minority communities to circumvent these this latest uh, mobilization drive, which is predominantly affecting the, the colonized communities in Russia? Um, so, this is a very complicated question, which depends on the person's personal background. And, you know, there are more than, I think, 200 colonized groups. Um, there have been reports of members of some smaller kind of um, people literally hiding. Uh, um, there was this kind of joke about going to the forest or into the taiga to um, avoid Russian conscription. And, you know, this is a strategy, you know, hiding, whether it's you're literally going into the forest or you don't live where... In Russia we have the system of uh, domicile registration, which I think also exists in um, communist China because they literally copied it from the USSR. And this is a system of kind of um, authoritarian control where the state knows where you are registered as living as that's where they send you your draft papers. But there are lots of ways to circumvent this, you know, don't open the door, um, say you're not living there, don't live based on your address. Um, the difficulty comes to people who are in formal employment because their employees have an obligation to distribute the draft papers to them. Um, once you receive the draft papers, then of course you can refuse to go to the um, military office. And that is not a crime. You will just, you know, in the worst case scenario, they'll just issue you with a fine. It's an administrative, um, administrative punishment, not a crime, so you won't be put in jail. But the problem is um, a lot of... Um, colonized people in Russia, they are very poor, and people who are poor usually are less educated and they might know about all the subtleties of the ways they can avoid conscription. And this has another problem that a lot of Russians have been fleeing the conscription by moving abroad. But again, if we look at colonized people, they tend to be particularly poor, or they tend to come from particularly isolated places in Russia, which again diminishes their chances of, you know, having the financial cultural, social capital to flee the war. And also there are, I think, total reports of racism on the Russian border. I think there was a case uh, on one of the land crossings of Georgia where the Russian 
um, the Russian side was not properly processing passport on the, uh, the passports of um, people who were from the North Caucasus. So when they came to the Georgian side um, and they tried to scan their passports, they were not in the system as having left Russia or something mm. like this. And even worse, um, I have a friend who belongs to the Korean minority and in Russia we have a Korean minority and in most post-Soviet states we have a Korean minority for three reasons. Um, um, a part of the very northern part of Korea was occupied by Russia during the 19th century, I think. And in the early Soviet period, they created an autonomous Korean region there. And by the late 20s, they decided that the Koreans were enemies of the people because Korea proper was occupied by Japan and Japan was the enemy. So they forcibly resettled all the Koreans from the Korean autonomous region th throughout Russia. Um, the second group of Koreans uh, we have in Russia is because of Japanese colonialism, when Japan uh, basically lost the war and they left Sakhalin and the Kuril Islands. They literally left behind uh, thousands of forced laborers, which they took from Korea to work for them as literally forced to slave labor. And they just left them and you know, the Soviets then resettled these people again. And then there were some kind of more uh, other types of um, Korean migration to Russia during the 19th century. So my friend, um, whose one side of his family was first, you know, a slave laborer for the Japanese and then kind of suffered um, racism by the Russian authorities, Soviet Russian authorities, and his other side of the family were literally resettled from their homeland on the border with um, what is today North Korea and then forcibly sent in cattle wagons to Central Asia. In any case, um, you know, he has a lot of history of Russian trauma in his life and he lived in Moscow and he decided to flee Russia when mobilization was announced. He took a bus to Kazakhstan and when the bus was going through Russian passport control, um, they singled him out specifically because he looked Asian and the Russian border guards told him to give all of his cash to them, otherwise they wouldn't let him pass because he was of conscription age and they had the right to refuse him entry. And he was saying that it seemed like they singled him out specifically because he was Asian, although obviously he's also a Russian citizen. You see all of these nuances and layers to the mobilization drive, I feel anyway, gets lost in the media coverage, particularly in, in the West, I think. Um, I want to talk about now um, the... It's, it's, I, I always hate using this word. I always cringe when I go to use this word, but identity. If we think about post-February, has the latest invasion changed the way that colonised communities in Russia perceive their own identity? Yes, I think it's leading to a real renaissance of kind of um, uh, colonised cultures. In some cases, I mean, I can't speak for all the colonized, but as I was saying, there is this real interest in learning the languages if you don't speak them. There's a real interest in um, sort of identifying with your own culture, even a little bit before the start of the war, perhaps because of the occupation of Crimea. I saw lots of people changing their surnames from the Russian surnames imposed on them to the kind of more, um, um, to the more sort of native surnames. And I say, um, I saw people after the, the Russia started the war, you know, started the full-scale invasion in February. I also kind of changed the public surname I used from the colonial Russian surname that I had to a more Chavash surname. And yes, I think it is leading to a lot of solidarity um, as well with um, at least um, both in real life and what I see on social media, people from different and very disparate colonized contexts within Russia are kind of communicating with each other and trying to kind of fo foster this sense of um, 
community and community in opposition to Russian colonialism. Yeah. Speaking of uh, this idea of, of, of identity and, and, and how uh, people from colonised communities interact and perceive their own identity, um, I came across this really uh, interesting quote from uh, Chavash artist Paulina Asipova, and she told the um, the New Statesman, uh, which is a British uh, newspaper, that uh, the Chavash language since the latest invasion of Ukraine is much freer than Russian. Do you agree with that? Um, well, thanks for mentioning Osipova, and it's nice that uh, at least somebody from Chavashyan becomes more or less well known outside of um, Chavashyan, of course, in the in the post-Soviet context. There's Aigi, who's uh, one of the Chavash poets, who's quite well known, and Agnir Huzangai, um, who's a specialist on um, um, Central Asian languages. Um, who was very instrumental in talking about the sort of um, Soviet and Russian erasure of the broader cultural continuities in the region through, for example, the Soviets forcibly changed the writing system for Central Asian languages that disconnected them from the broader culture, which was linked to Afghanistani and um, Iranian culture. But yes, it's nice to uh, also uh, have someone kind of who's more contemporary uh, from Chaoshan being recognized. And this is an interesting statement, and I think it's complicated. I think at the start of the war, it was definitely true. Chaosh language was um, freer, but at the same time, we're finding that, you know, if you are to go to protest in Russia, you can literally hold up a piece of blank paper and they'll arrest you for anti-war, sort of, or discreditation of the Russian army. And since the war started, I think, um, it, before the war started, it was true that kind of Russian censorship mechanisms, especially in social media, were geared around Russian language um, content. And unfortunately, I think there's more capability of the state in at least some of the major um, colonized languages because they kind of decided to have that. And I think, but I still think, you know, it's true, Chavash language is freer than Russian language, especially because, you know, but the reason why it's freer, it's kind of sad, it's because of Few and few, fewer and fewer people speak it, which means that, you know, um, of course it becomes freer because it's not such a big priority for the state, but also it means that the language is, you know, uh, having um, has a trajectory towards dying out. Your PhD research um, uh, focuses on um, film, is it film and TV? Or just film, film and television. Yeah. Film and television. Um, do you have any recommendations for our listeners of any uh, Chavash or... Uh, ethnic minority uh, film or television that they could watch? I think for recommendations for those who don't speak Russian, film makes more sense because it's more accessible, you usually have subtitles, etc. Um, there are some interesting cases. I would rec recommend looking at um, the films produced in Saha or, or Yakutia, as it's known, as it, which is its Russian name. Um, they have a real sort of film production boom and it's very interesting. Their films even could get to international festivals, for example in Korea, I think in Busan and in Japan, their films have been um, sort of shown at international festivals. Um, but if I had to recommend specific films, unfortunately I would have to recommend, a f well fortunately or unfortunately I would recommend a film Terra, uh, which is a short documentary film by a Russian director. Um, 
that came out in 2018, and it's about the predicament faced by the Nens people in Yemen, Nens Autonomous Region, whose land and um, sort of grazing rights are being taken away by the extremely polluting hydrocarbon industry. And it's I think it's a really important fil film, which goes to the root of kind of the real intersectional tragedy of um, Russian energy. And the other film I would recommend um, is um, Solombek Mamilov's um, A Little Golden Cloud Spent the Night, which is the film um, about the forced deportations of Chechen and Gush people from the Caucasus to Central Asia, which happened in 1945 under Stalin. Um, and I mean, the deportation was one of the original reasons for Chechnya declaring its independence from Russia in 1991 and for the two Chechen wars. Thank you, Misha, for uh, giving us your time today. It's been incredibly insightful and, frankly, a privilege to be able to hear from you. Well, thanks for having me. Thank you to our listeners, as always, for uh, your support. Uh, don't forget to sub subscribe to our Spotify to uh, make sure that you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram to keep up to date with our content at The Scroll Online. I'm Giorgio Constandi. This is The Scroll. Thank you for listening. Thank you.